15-year-old Jacob Williamson of Cape Coral, Florida, studied for eight hours a day for three months for the Scripps National Spelling Bee. He had reached the 10th round of the championship finals of the Spelling Bee when he was given the word Cabaragoya. Cabaragoya. Yeah, you'll see it on the screen. He confidently declared when the word was given to him. He says, I know it. I know it. I totally know it. Unfortunately, he did not know how to spell the word. But that didn't keep this teenager from reacting in spectacular fashion. Jacob spelled the word Cabaragoya. He spelled it C-A-B-A-R-A-G-O-Y-A. The incorrect bell then sounded, and Jacob said in confident surprise, what? What? The video of this has actually gone viral. You can check it out. Not now. Not now. Wait till later. You can check it out. Jacob Williamson. The moderator then gave him the correct spelling. Cabrera Goya. Sometimes we can confidently think that we know something or understand something when there may be something that we don't know about it or don't understand. That's why while we're in the season and process of celebrating Christmas, it might not be a bad idea to revisit a familiar and very important question. Why was Jesus born? This is a question that most Christians could answer. But, but I wonder how many around us cannot answer the question. Tonight, we're going to take a look at the question. Why was Jesus born? The short answers are to save the world, to die for man's sins. But let's look at it a little bit longer tonight. Let's look at it a little bit longer. The writer of Hebrews talks about the preeminence of Jesus and gives a more detailed answer to the question. So let's look at this passage in Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse 10. And if you're taking notes tonight, I've got two points. The first answer to the question, why was Jesus born, according to Hebrews chapter 2, is this, to bring many sons to glory, to bring many sons to glory. Let's pick it up in Hebrews 2, verse 10. It says this, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. God's desire is to have a big family. If you think about what it is that the Lord's trying to accomplish, what it is that he's trying to do, he's building a family. 
It's the family of God, and he wants it big. God's a big God, bigger than we can possibly imagine, and he wants a big, big family. He wants many people to be in his family and to be with him forever. So he has a plan to redeem man, as many as would come to him. Why? Because man sinned. We find ourselves in a fallen state. The world has yet, not yet found an answer to the critical uh, human character error of uh, just that disposition towards doing what is not right. We call it sin. The Bible calls it sin. So he, God has a plan. He has a plan to bring back from sin and death as many as would come, to bring many sons to glory. Now, God has an interest in bringing many sons to glory. Men and women are his creation. He created mankind. We've been learning in Genesis chapter 1, right? It came on that day, on the sixth day, that he created man. Male and female, he created them. He created man. And he put him in the garden. He put him in the earth. And so man is his creation, Look at it. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things. Right? So God has an interest in bringing many sons to glory, bringing people out of their sinful state, bringing them out of death, and bringing them to life. Why? Because they are part of those things that are his, that are part of his creation. To whom are all things and by whom? By whom? In other words, he created all things. So God has a vested interest in redeeming mankind. But he also has, there's another point of his vested interest in it. In redeeming men and women, it is consistent with his character. God is a God of glory. His essence and character are such that the things he does must always be consistent with his character. And so when we see that in the first verse, verse 10, it says, for it was fitting for him. So we see that he's got a vested interest, not only because we're his creation, but also because of who he is. It's fitting for him to bring many sons to glory because he's God. He's a loving God, and he loved mankind, and he put man and, and made him in the image, in his own image. He made him as the image to be his representative on the earth. And so God has a vested interest, and God always acts in ways that are consistent with his character to fulfill his glory. Amen? Amen. So God has this vested interest. In coming to earth to redeem man, it is said to be up to his glorious character. Up to his glorious character. We see this idea in another verse, and I wanted to bring it out to you tonight because it's a familiar chapter for all of us. Many of us grew up memorizing these verses in Psalm chapter 23. It's the, 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 it's the good shepherd, right? Psalm chapter 23, and I want to read... Specifically, verse 3. It says this He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
Now, we, we, we kind of gloss over that because, you know, we, we've said it so many times and we've got it up on plaques on our walls in our houses and our bathrooms and such. And, and, but let me tell you, he says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for what? For what purpose? For his name's sake. For his glory. Because leading me in the paths of righteousness is consistent with his character and rising up to meet his glory. And so God's got a vested interest. God's got a vested interest in bringing many sons to order. Now, in that order that he might bring salvation to man, it had to be done through the suffering of the son. And we'll get into this in our second point tonight. But man's salvation was made possible through the sufferings of the son, Jesus. Look at that in verse uh, 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Man's salvation was made possible through the sufferings of Jesus. The son, the second person of the Trinity, was made, this text tells us, the captain of salvation. The captain of salvation. We've got Captain America, you know, the Avengers and all this. I just saw the trailer last night. I went to see Star Wars. I have no idea what happened in Star Wars. <laughs> Don't even ask me. I, I just I have no clue what happened in that movie, you know? And I'm not even going to give any, you know, no spoiler alerts or anyways, because I couldn't even tell you. <clears throat> but we've got a captain, the captain of our salvation. And the father made the son the captain of our salvation. And through his sufferings, it made possible that we would be brought to the Lord, that we would be brought to glory. That is, he consecrated, he appointed him to that office. How is it? He gave him that status, that office, captain of salvation. He gave him not only the office, the status, he commissioned him for it and made him a perfect captain. He's not just a good captain. He's a perfect captain of salvation. Amen? And the purpose of this, again, was to bring about this great divine family. Look at verse 13. I'm sorry, 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So the purpose of this appointment of the second person, the son, the second person of the Trinity, to be the perfect captain of salvation had a purpose of making mankind once again to be one with God, to bring about this reunion as such, to make us one with the Lord. You see, he who, he, he who sanctifies and he who are being sanctified are of one. In other words, when we are the ones being sanctified, if we've come to Christ by virtue of what he did when he came 
to the earth and was born in Bethlehem and grew up and eventually went to Calvary and gave his life on the cross at that perfect captain of salvation, not carrying a shield, but carrying a cross. We become one with him because he's the one sanctifying and we're the ones being sanctified. And this verse tells us that he who sanctifies and he who are, is being sanctified are of one. Are of one. And look at that final part of the verse. He says, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers. What? This goes back to the whole idea that God is building this divine family. He's building the family of God. He's bringing what? Many sons to glory. And he's doing it through the son, Jesus, who now calls us his brothers. Amen? Amen. He calls us his brothers. Now, I always wanted a brother. I didn't have a brother. I have two sisters, two great sisters, an older one and a younger one. And, but I have no brothers. And my sons, God gave me three boys, right? And they remind me all the time, Dad, when I, you know, back in the day, I don't know if it hadn't been in a while, but back in the day when they would just be, you know, beating each other up and, and, and just, you know, just hacking away at one another. And, you know, you can't do that, guys. Come on. You can't do that. I mean, when you have boys, anybody who can, anybody who's ever had all boys, it's a completely different thing, okay? It's a completely different thing. You want to rip out all the toilets in the house and install urinals. <clears throat> and, and, you know, that's the first thing you want to do. That's the first thing you want to do. And then there are other things you want to do, okay? But I tell you what, I, t- I, t- I would tell the guys, you can't do this, guys. You can't do this. And this is what the dad you don't know what it's like to have a brother. And I just, I never had a comeback for that. I never had, I never had, I could never come back, but. But you know what this verse tells us? That he's the captain of our salvation and he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. And I love that. I love that about Jesus. Jesus came to the world to redeem man, to sanctify man, to bring many sons to glory, and he's called us brothers. He's called us a friend, and he's not ashamed to call us a brother. And, and you'll, go through, you'll go through life, and you'll, you'll go through uh, you know, your acquaintances and perhaps seeing different people in media and such, and you'll come across people that are ashamed of Jesus. They're ashamed of Jesus. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. Or they, they don't want anything to do with perhaps the church. Maybe they like Jesus, but they don't like the church. I've heard people say that. Jesus likes the church. And here it says he's not ashamed to call us all brothers. And, you know, Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. You'll see it on the screen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. I'm not ashamed of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the cross of salvation. And he's not ashamed of me. Although he could be. Although he could be. Be But because he's a perfect captain and he came to pay a price, pay pay a debt that he didn't know, he calls on top of it. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. Amen. So why did Jesus, why was Jesus born? The first answer, according to Hebrews, is to bring many sons to glory. 
The second answer is this, to make possible reconciliation with God. Let's pick it up. Verse 14, it says this, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brothers, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So the second point tonight is, Jesus was born to make possible reconciliation with God. Jesus made it possible for us to be reconciled to God by first becoming human. That's the first point. How did he make possible us being reconciled to God? The first point is that he became human. He became a human being. He took on flesh, as Paul said it that way in Philippians chapter 2. He became human. And then second, by his death, he released us from the ultimate death sentence that was upon us. God's desire is, I said from the outset, is to build a, a, a family, right? And so his desire is to reconcile man to himself. So he had to become one. He had to become a man. If he was going to reconcile man to himself, he had to become one. To reconcile under those under the curse of death, he had to become one of us to redeem us from our fallen situation. The writer tells us here, for indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Wow, interesting verse. What does it mean? At Christmas time, there's a lot of talk about angels, right? But this verse tells us that he... He does, not, he does not give aid to the angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. As you read your Bibles from cover to cover, beginning in Genesis, you learn that there are some fallen angels, fallen sons of gods, fallen divine sons that, that, that came down and entered into all kinds of various mischiefs in the earth. And you can see some of this in Genesis 3, and then you can read about more of it in Genesis chapter 6. So the Bible has a message of, of divine sons of God, part of, members of the host of heaven that fell, that sinned against God. Peter talks about them in his epistles, the angels that sinned. Jude talks about them in his epistle, the angels that sinned. Here, the writer of Hebrews tells us, for he indeed does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. The plan of salvation was to redeem mankind, to reconcile lost man back to himself, men and women throughout the earth. So he had to become like his brothers to redeem them. 
So the gospel, the message of the gospel, is not about, there's nothing in it about the redemption of angels. It's, it's, it's not in the, in the gospel. And this is just something that the writer is pointing out. You know? Maybe there is some other thing that we're not aware of and whatever. You know, God will tell us all about that. And that's a separate plan or whatever. Uh, who? Wow. That could, be, that could be. But the gospel is not about that. He does not give aid to angels. But who does he give aid to? What's the gospel about? It's about giving aid to the seed of Abraham. Aid to the seed of Abraham. This is why he was born. His plan is to save man, and so he became a man. Because his mission was to redeem man. Look at verse 17. Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brothers. He had to become human. There was no other way. He had to come and take on flesh and be one of us. He had to become a son of Adam as well to redeem those of us who are also sons of Adam. One of the commentators I read put it this way, summarizing these verses. Christ resolving to recover the seed of Abraham and raise them up from their fallen state, he took upon him the human nature from one descended from the loins of Abraham, that the same nature that had sinned might suffer to restore human nature to a state of hope and trial and all that accepted of mercy to a state of special favor and salvation. Look back at verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brothers that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to be merciful, to, to, to do something of mercy, to bring mercy to the world, to, to, to bring his grace, to bring his love. And that's why one of the hallmark characteristics at Christmas is this idea of love and giving. Because when you think about why Jesus was born, why was it? So that he could give mercy. So that he could give mercy for all those who, who were under the bondage of sin, the death sentence of sin. He came to give, to give mercy, to make it possible that we might be reconciled to God. He did it to make propitiation. Uh-oh, there's a big theological word, but it means this, to render oneself, to appease, to conciliate to oneself, to, to be gracious, to be merciful, to, to make propitiations, the idea of satisfying the justice of God, really. And so he made propitiation. He came and he was the perfect sacrifice on the cross. He came and gave his life as a, as a human being, born as a human, but fully, fully God, yet fully man. We understand this to be the theology, the Christology of the person of Christ as he came and he took on flesh, that he, he was fully man, but he's fully the divine son, the second person of the Trinity, one with the Father. And so giving his life as one who was one with the Father, but having taken on flesh, becoming human, becoming a son of Adam, he took the penalty 
of the sin. And he bought back those that were under the death sentence. God had commanded. God commanded and gave a law. Back in the beginning, in Genesis, remember that? He put man and woman in the garden and he gave a command. He gave a law. And this law carried with it a sentence of death to all who violated it. And what happened? Adam violated it. He violated the command and brought death, spiritual death, separation from God. And through Adam's sin, the Bible teaches us that each and every person, each and every human being, son of Adam, who's born into the earth, is born with a propensity towards sin. And we grow up and we sin. Nobody has to be taught how to do it. We just, boom, we just do it. We just find ourselves in sin. And therefore, we find ourselves under the death sentence. The death sentence. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So the father sent the son, made him a man so that he could pay the penalty of death that was upon every single man and woman, every single lawbreaker. And in order to pay the penalty for man, he had to become man. And this is why Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea 2,000 years ago. And so the message of Christmas is that he came to make reconciliation with God possible. What is this really called? If you were going to say that in one word, what would it be? Peace. Peace. He came to bring peace. Peace on earth. Goodwill toward men. The message of Christmas is that he came to bring peace. He came to make peace. You know, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Right? He didn't say blessed are the peacekeepers. He said blessed are the peacemakers. That's because he's a peacemaker. (laughs) Amen. He came to make peace. He didn't come to observe and have a badge. He came to make peace, to bring about and make possible reconciliation with God. You can have that peace. Those of men and women across the earth who've responded to the message of the gospel, the message that Jesus came, became a man, he came, was born, grew up, died, he allowed himself to be killed. He allowed himself to be taken. If you read the, read the gospels, sit down and read the gospels. What's the message? The message is this, he laid his life down. He could have called so many angels to his To his aid at that moment when they nailed him to the cross, I mean, it's just mind-boggling. Legions upon legions of angels he could have called. But he laid his life down to make peace. 
to make peace possible, to make reconciliation with God possible. And you can have that peace. The peace is there. Right now, you may not have that peace. You might be sitting here and say, well, I don't have peace in my life. I wish I had peace. I wish there was more peace in my life. If you're honest with yourself, and I ask you this question, do you have peace with God? Do you have what Jesus came and brought about as coming into this world and what we celebrate at Christmas? Do you have that very thing? Do you have peace with God? And if you're honest with yourself, maybe you have to say, well, no, as I'm sitting here right now, I do not have peace with God. It's available. Here it is. The price has been paid. Here's the peace. You just have to enter into it. You just have to receive it. But you have to receive it. Amen? Amen. You can have a peace that the world doesn't know. This world is looking for peace. This world all over, all over this earth, across this earth, on every coast, there's a desire for peace as tensions rise. And things are happening. You can have a peace that this world doesn't know. The Bible calls it a peace that surpasses understanding. We sang about it earlier tonight. It, 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 surpasses, it's, it's, it surpasses understanding. It's a peace that's mind-boggling. <laughs> Why? Because you now have peace with God. You now have peace with God. And all you have to do is receive the king of heaven. As the lady sang, the incarnate word of God. The incarnate. What's that? What's the incarnate word of God? That's a nice way to say the embodied Christ. The embodied son of God. It's a nice way to say what Christmas is all about. The Son, the second person of the Trinity, became embodied in human flesh so that he could call us brothers and he could pay the penalty to bring peace. Amen? So back to the question. Why did Jesus come? Why was Jesus born? I can't spell Kabaragoya. Kabaragoya. But what's very important is to know why Jesus was born and to have the peace that he brought and to receive it into your heart. 